for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right. Welcome to the program. This is TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. It is a momentous Monday, especially if you are in the U.S. of A. It's happening, ladies and gentlemen. It's all starting. It's kicked off. This is when the 2024 election is off and running. The Iowa caucuses commence today. That's the beginning of the primaries on the Republican side. Of course, on the Democrat side, Biden's running unopposed, so he doesn't need to show up to campaign. No surprise there. Same as the last election. But uh, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek, or Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, all vying for the hearts and minds of the Republican base in Iowa. This is the great whistle test for the GOP, uh, along with the New Hampshire primaries, which is coming up shortly. But this is interesting. We'll get a little bit of analysis here. I'll weigh in on this. And it'll be certainly interesting to see how the media will quickly pivot and change tune. I'm starting to see it already. I'll explain. Right now, you see in the run-up to the Iowa caucuses, interesting, interesting. It's all been uh, about Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley. Who's going to pull ahead? Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. They've kind of pushed Trump out of the conversation in the run-up. And lo and behold, and lo and behold, this morning, uh, the media have changed their tunes. So the wishful thinking ends, the reality begins. Iowa caucuses, now the mainstream media are admitting, acknowledging that Donald Trump is not only in the lead, but ahead by some 20 or 30 points, depending on uh, where you are. I think it'll be tighter in Iowa just because of the structure of the caucus system. It's unique. It's different from most other primary states. uh, And it'll probably close the gap a little bit in in some of these meetings and caucuses where local people get together in their groups and vote amongst their smaller committees. And then those votes or the consensuses are sent to a central tabulation and you get a sort of overall result, not exactly one man, one vote, different type of primary. The Iowans love it. Other people don't. But anyway, the Iowa caucuses are going to see the GOP voters are going to cast their first votes uh, votes tonight. And so the votes will come late. So it'll be like 7 p.m. local time. And so that'll be sort of like five or six hours from now. You'll start to hear some noises, see some results, see some exit polling as well. And the latest polls have Donald Trump way out in front, of course. And so it's really all about Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, who's going to get second place. So that's what the media coverage will be all about. Who's going to get second place? And it's funny when you take uh, media outlets like NPR, these are sort of beltway establishment, uh, Democrat leaning, clearly Democrat leaning media outlets. So they listed the Iowa caucus candidates in order of alphabetical order, not in order of who's likely to be favorites. So how they've listed the candidates, it's it's this is all part of the psychological warfare. They've got Ron DeSantis at the top, Nikki Haley second, Asa Hutchinson, don't know much about him. Anyway, he's apparently running. Vivek Ramaswamy, and then at the bottom is Donald Trump. Uh, 
because they did it in alphabetical order. Isn't that interesting? You start to see little things like this when you look at U.S. election coverage. I'm very wary of U.S. election coverage in general. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting one. So it'll be a Trump win. And so how's the media going to spin that? How they're going to spin that is just to not talk about the Trump win and dominate the coverage with the second place contest. That'll be DeSantis and Haley. Vivek coming in. He'll probably show pretty well, but maybe a close third. Uh, guys like Vivek do well because he's hitting the pavement. He's out meeting people. The caucuses love that. So in the Democratic side uh, in 2020, the last election, I think uh, Pete Buttigieg and uh, some other Democrats had a pretty good ground game, managed to get uh, a lot of attention there. People like Liz Warren and those types of you know politicians crack open a beer with the locals. Uh, they love all that in Iowa. So that'll play down really well. Nikki Haley will be selling wars, more wars and endless wars. That's her main uh, campaign pitch, although she's starting to dip into domestic policy and not talking about the United Nations every five minutes. But anyway, we digress. Let's move on. We're going to be joined in the first hour by uh, veteran journalist based in Washington, D.C., Sam Husseini. He's going to join us to talk about updates and developments with the genocide convention. Last week was historic. Last week was historic. South Africa's move to hold Israel to account has sent shockwaves around the world. This has had huge implications right across the geopolitical sphere, including uh, in the Arab world, including with the Gulf states. Now they're in a bit of a conundrum, a moral conundrum. Do they side with South Africa? Do they side with the global consensus that Israel is guilty of genocide long before any verdict is going to come through in the international courts of justice that could take years the emergency measures which is what they're going for right now is this potentially genocide that's all they need to rule on and then there'll be a cease and desist calling for a ceasefire in gaza that that will happen in days or by the end of the week maybe next week at the latest it's going to happen fairly quickly within two weeks so where are the gulf states lie on this spectrum of morality and that's a really important question so that's immediate results right there you're starting to see statements by the gulf states normalization relations with israel guilty of genocide i don't think that's a good look internationally now you can see why although these are not enforceable rulings they are having immediate effect in ways that people can't comprehend unless you are a keen student of politics that's what we're trying to get you on this program, our audience, to understand how politics matters and how politics can work with geopolitics to change the playing field. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat room. Great to see you guys in there. Appreciate you. Uh, and also in the second hour, uh, we're going to be joined uh, by a special guest, uh, Palestinian activist, Isa Amro. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, he is a significant and impactful voice out there. And on the ground in Palestine, you have some great activists doing great work and under very, very difficult conditions, difficult, con hostile conditions. Anyway, I'm looking forward to talking to Isa uh, as well in the second hour. We'll also get uh, a chime in by Basil Valentine, our intrepid correspondent, who will be joining us 
from off the coast of Africa uh, for his latest uh, updates uh, on the Middle East and also the political updates uh, in the UK as well as in the US. I've also got a pretty crazy story to share with you in the second hour regarding artificial intelligence and the British government. Imagine if British ministers outsourced all of their reading of key documents to some AI system. Would you feel confident as a member of the electorate uh, that you're getting good bang for the buck from your elected representatives, that they're outsourcing the reading of key documents to some AI system, which was sold to the government by some consultant? This is how the technocracy works. They love all this in Davos. Speaking of Davos, Davos is underway, and apparently the Swiss government are not happy. Uh, they're being priced out of Davos. What does that mean? The World Economics Annual Shindig has pushed accommodation costs beyond the reach of the Swiss government and their officials, and not only are they having trouble getting rooms, they can't afford it. So they're having to send officials there and doubling up in rooms and looking for alternative accommodation. Why don't they just do what the Palestinians do and pitch tents up uh, like sort of refugee camps? Maybe that would work. Uh, the great and the good descend on Davos with the army and fleets of private jets, which are landing in the nearest airport a couple of miles away, all to fight climate change, of course. And this is, this is the alpine sort of citadel of technocracy known as Davos, the World Economic Forum's annual shindig. They get together to talk about vaccine mandates, uh, how to track and trace you, how to make the public comply, how to make propaganda and gaslighting more effective. These are just some of the issues uh, that come up at this conference. And uh, what else? How to, uh, how to get the public to accept and acquiesce to a certain future where you own, you will own nothing and be happy. This is Davos, ladies and gentlemen. Klaus Schwab, their spiritual leader, will be delivering a keynote speech somewhere around the middle of this conference. It's probably almost over by now. Uh, but anyway, the World Economic Forum were very kind, and they left 25 hotel rooms to the Swiss government last year. And some of these were inside the so-called security zone. And, uh, you know, bargain basement prices, $1,400 per night for a basic room. And outside of the so-called security zone, uh, a bargain price at uh, $700 uh, per night. So very affordable accommodation at Davos. The Swiss government have said, actually, we can't afford it. They're either going to have to stay way out of town and do a long commute up the mountain, uh, or some of them have just knocked it on the head and said, we're not going to attend this year. And who would blame them? Anyway, we'll talk more about Davos. We'll talk about the climate, uh, the weather, record-breaking winter, low temperatures, snowstorms hitting the Midwest beginning this week. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to basically extend right through February. Uh, and according to meteorologists, we're looking at one of the longest winters and perhaps the coldest winter on record uh, in the United States, believe it or not. That's uh, interesting. It's interesting. We'll talk about the weather and all the climate policies, Davos, all the rest of it in the second hour. Uh, for now, let's break with TNT, today's news talk. We're going to do a hard pivot back to Europe, to The Hague in the Netherlands. We're going to speak 
to veteran journalist Sam Husseini on the other side to talk about latest developments in the genocide convention. All this and more. Stay right there. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The double standard is out there. It's so obvious. It's so frustrating. Eric Holder gets held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. Nothing happens. Obama's DOJ didn't pursue it. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro defy a congressional subpoena. Joe Biden's DOJ criminally prosecutes them. Criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? Haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans. That's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Well, I wanna say this and I'm gonna say it just once. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. Patrick Henningsen, your host here. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast. We're going to talk now about international developments over to Europe, to the Netherlands, to The Hague. Everybody witnessed what happened last week. It was historic. South Africa making its appeal to the international courts of justice on behalf of the Palestinian people, making the case uh, that there's genocide happening uh, in Gaza, uh, holding Israel to account. Israel in the dock as well with its rebuttals the following Friday. And then over the weekend, uh, we saw the jostling back and forth, not only within the institutional setting, but in the media as well. The battle of narratives uh, has begun, but it looks like South Africa is holding uh, the fort on this issue. And it's incredible to look at the reactions on this latest developments. I want to go over to veteran journalist based in Washington, D.C., Sam Hussein. He's joining us on the line right now. Sam, this has been an incredible event. Uh, Thursday was historic. Uh, I think this is one of the highest rated uh, web TV broadcasts that the UN has on their digital services. There were rumors that the server was struggling. Uh, there was outage. There was downtime. People around the world tuned in all time zones to watch this uh, historic moment by South Africa. And then the next day, uh, we didn't see any coverage of it in the mainstream media or very sparse coverage, Sam. But we saw a lot of coverage of the Israeli uh, 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 session, which was on Friday. Um, just your reactions on how last week went and then going forward, how the conversation is developing. Sam Husseini. Great. Thank you so much, Patrick. Um, yeah, I thought that the um, South African case was quite strong. Um, they went through, you know, um, Israel's actions now. Their, their 84-page application went through the background in terms of prior attacks on Gaza, um, and they went through the genocidal intent and so on. Um, I, I, I think that it certainly hasn't gotten, 
you know, what it needs to get. Um, but in terms of, you know, on so-called social media and other platforms, it's certainly gotten a, a great deal. And hopefully this signals a, a step in the, you know, a, a reconfiguration of the world uh, where law actually matters and facts actually matter. And they're not just simply instruments of uh, the most powerful. In South Africa, you know, you couldn't have asked for a better state to do this in terms of the symbolism of it, having, you know, overcome apartheid and colonialism and having, um, I should say, hopefully having overcome apartheid and colonialism, because I fully expect that South Africa and the ANC will now come under massive attack. Um, so we need to keep an eye on that. Um, what's part of what's now um, uh, critical is that other countries need to uh, issue declarations um, uh, of intervention legal. Um, you, you've had uh, about 30 countries, uh, mostly in the global south, um, you know, back South Africa up in terms of, you know, making statements from Algeria to Brazil to uh, Lebanon and so on. Uh, only a handful, however, have said that they will do be making legal declarations um uh bangladesh and uh colombia um so there needs to be more on that I, I wrote a piece outlining how this you know what people can do to help make that happen on uh, on new year's day uh so people might want to take a look at that at husseini.substack.com um we also saw and this is kind of remarkable there was minimal coverage of the South Africa thing, and then something happened between the South Africa thing and the uh, Israel uh, defense of the genocide charges, and that's that the U.S. bombed Yemen. Um, and um, so you would you would you would kind of think it would be the other way around, right? You would have thought that there would be a lot of coverage of South Africa, and then not as much coverage of Israel, both on the merits and also because. There's this other major story. Um, so the timing of it uh, seems to me is quite notable that it would seem to distract from people process. It, it, it's like each crime distracts from the previous crime. You know, um, uh, you know, don't 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 look at what South Africa is saying at The Hague. We're going to commit this other war <laughs> crime. And um, and, um, you know, um, you know, I, I wrote you know, several months ago uh, about invoking the Genocide Convention, and then I eventually wrote a piece basically saying they call it genocide, but don't invoke the Genocide Convention, basically taking all these countries to task who had called what Israel's doing genocide. And now we sort of have a domestic U.S. analogy to that. And that is that after Biden uh, bombed Yemen, you had all of these um, Congress people uh, Rokana, Matt, uh, Democrat, Matt Getz, uh, Republican, um, uh, I, I would say almost 10 of them, both Republicans and Democrats, saying this is unconstitutional. You can't do that, Joe Biden. You went out and you formed an international co you know, coalition or cooperation with all these other states in order to go after the Houthis, and you never went uh, to Congress. You can't say that it's an emergency. You had a month at least to uh, to deal with things internationally and you didn't come to Congress. 
So saying it's an emergency doesn't pass muster. Um, and I think it's notable that they did that, but none of them will talk about the obvious legal remedy, which is impeachment. Um, that is impeachment in the United States becomes this political football over, you know, personal issues or personal corruption or, or you know, uh, relatively provincial matters. Um, but when it really comes down to a real substantial case for impeachment in terms of violating war powers, for example, suddenly no member of Congress has yet stepped forward. And I think that that should be this, a source of, you know, serious push into activism and scrutiny. It, it is pretty extraordinary, Sam, that uh, the, 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 the thing to, to pursue in the last month were, would be some sort of talks, de-escalation talks, talk to the Yemenis saying, hey, look, we're, we're going to speak to Israel. We think uh, it's in the best interest that there is de-escalation uh, in Gaza, especially in light, Sammy, of the fact that it is in The Hague. That it is in the Hague is the perfect opportunity for the Biden. It almost gives the Biden administration an out to talk about de-escalation. I mean, I feel like Sammy, you've been in Washington for a while uh, enough to see different administrations and different envoys and different State Department regimes. I feel like this would have been a no-brainer twenty years ago, or even ten years ago. What what, yeah. what is happening now? Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, certainly uh, take the invasion of Iraq, for example. The U.S. had lots of opportunities to not do that, right? They, they, they could have come to all kinds of accommodations in terms of what their alleged concerns about Iraq were. Um, but their agenda was to invade Iraq. Um, the U.S. agenda was to destroy Libya. The U.S. agenda was to undermine Syria. That's my interpretation of all of these actions. So I think that this highlights what the actual agenda is, right? The, the actual agenda, I, I don't believe that Israel uh, prioritizes in any meaningful way um, the safety of its own citizens. It prioritizes being an expansionist colonial state. Um, and, is, and the US, uh, certainly the Biden administration has backed that up to the hilt. So their claims that they care about all of these other things, they're at best costs, um, whereas their overriding um, goal of the U.S. and Israeli establishments is uh, to dominate the region, to dispossess the Palestinian people and everything else, you know, whether it's the Hamas attack or anything else become, becomes a, um, a, uh, a pretext uh for those ends they either want people to roll over and be subservient which is what a lot of arab governments effectually effectively are uh or to fight them in a way that gives them a pretext to be more violent um and um so you know i i think that so I, i'm i'm very you know dubious uh, about the notion that their stated goals are their actual goals uh, but you're absolutely right. If they wanted, I mean, the Houthis are basically saying we're only doing this because Israel's committing genocide, right? I mean, the Houthis are effectively doing their own version of responsibility to protect. Yes, uh, exactly. They're saying, they're saying 150 countries around the world. I mean, I, I don't know if they explicitly said this, but effectively, this is their their argument. <clears throat> uh, said that they wanted a, a ceasefire in Gaza. Israel is refusing a ceasefire in Gaza. 
we're going to make a ceasefire in Gaza happen. Um, so, uh, you know, um, it was disturbing. I haven't been able to get a copy of this, interestingly, but the UN Security Council did pass a resolution uh, chastising the Houthis. I don't know the exact wording of it because, as I say, it's been several days um, and I haven't been able to obtain a copy of it. Um, but um, uh, uh, but China and Russia abstained on that. Uh, and I think that's a matter of scrutiny because quite obviously the U.S. was going to use that, uh, I, I think, as a pretext, as they have done in the past, right? They, they, you know, every time the U.N. Security Council, you know, sort of goes along with some U.S. design, whether it's Libya or um, uh, Syria or wherever, that, you know, U.S. uses that as a pretext. If you haven't seen the pattern yet, you're, you're not paying attention. Um, so uh, I, I think that uh, China and Russia should be questioned as to why they went along uh, and abstained. Uh, they do, do you think that's possible? Russia. The abstentions by that's an interesting point, Sammy, and one we'd like to get some answers for. But do you think it's possible that Russia and China abstained because this is a precarious issue for them or in the future if they were to engage in the same policy, uh, that it would be a matter of their protecting their position going forward to reserve the right to interdict uh, in, in, in the Black Sea, for instance, uh, as, as an example, or the South China Sea. What Do you think that might have something to do with it, their own sort of geostrategic uh, uh, conundrums that they're embroiled in? It could be their own, you know, geostrategic, um, uh, you know, uh, perspective, or, or it could be you know that it could be deal making behind the scenes going on, um, or or, um, or 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 something else. I mean, and this goes to the broader question about how the ICJ uh, will rule on South Africa's genocide case, right? You have you know the the fifteen judges, and then you know South Africa and Israel both got to pick additional judges, um, and you had. The U.S. currently has the presidency, and there's a Russian judge and a Chinese judge. I mean, some people analyze what the court's going to do in terms of what the geostrategic interests are of each of these countries. Um, so does, you know, could uh, the Russian government urge the Russian judge to vote against this uh, because they want the um, uh, because they don't want the ICJ to come down too hard on Russia that they don't want, mm -hmm. well, you know, um, or, or, you know, I mean, the ICJ has already come, you know, been critical of Russia. Uh, so you'd think that it would be the opposite that they would, if, if anything, urge the, the judge to do that. So, you know, there are two different interpretations to what's happening at the ICJ. That is, is this all just power politics in terms of the interests of each of the countries represented on the court? Or is it actually a process um, uh, to administer uh, to administer justice as it purports? I should say that there were some um, limitations, in my view, of the South African case um, that I think opened the door for some things by Israel. For example, the South Africans uh, made no mention of the Hannibal Directive, uh, the Israeli policy mm -hmm. of killing. Um, their own soldiers or potentially their own citizens or potentially other people's citizens um, in order to prevent them from being taken hostage um, or captive. Um, 
you, you know, I think highlighting that that would tremendously undermine the um, the uh, notion uh, that Israel cares so much about its citizens, which was their you know comp- you know total refrain in terms of you know Hamas is bad, Hamas is bad, Hamas is bad when they presented their case, um, and you also saw uh, uh, you know Netanyahu's hysterical speech um, after the. Um, case uh, the oral arguments were made um and uh, in, in which he um you know basically said we don't care what the you know axis of terror thinks and we don't care what the hague thinks and you know we're just going to do whatever we want to do so hopefully um uh, the icj has noted uh that um Netanyahu is just you know spouting complete derision for uh them and the the, the prospect the possibility of um uh, of international law actually having some teeth towards them um uh, people seem to be expecting that uh provisional measures which might include a cease and desist order ordering a ceasefire to happen potentially in as soon as a week um quite likely by the end of the month um so this that, that isn't the case you know the case will go on for years but the ICJ critically right now has the opportunity to issue an order. Um, you know, the South Africa laid out a whole series of, of, of uh, provisional measures that they wanted done as soon as possible. And if the ICJ grants them, uh, that will be a major setback for Israeli and U.S. establishment designs. Uh, the, the, as, as far as other European countries weighing in on this, Sam, uh, Germany kind of yeah. got the attention of a lot of people and not in the best possible light. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are and could just explain how that went down because it was a very uncomfortable uh, position which Germany has taken on this. The backlash has been pretty immense uh, out in the Twitter sphere and, and so forth. But explain what happened here. Yeah, well, I mean, very deservedly, they put out a statement and an intention, I believe, to uh, to file a formal declaration of intervention in the case on behalf of Israel. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the strongest pushback that I've seen was from Namibia. Um, and I was only vaguely aware of this. Um, uh, that that um, uh, uh, Germany, you know, which didn't have a lot of colonies, unlike a lot of other European powers, but they had Namibia, um, and uh, you know, a lot of scholars apparently, um, you know, connect the uh, Nazi Holocaust to having roots in um, uh, German uh, atrocities and you know. Uh, uh, imperialism uh, against Namibia uh, that apparently had a horrific toll on that country. So, um, you know, Namibia sort of chimed in and said, yeah, (laughs) you know, so, I mean, you got to say like, you know, Germany, it's like, it's they're they're like batting a thousand here. It's it's like, you know, every every (laughs) major event there. So, I mean, getting some pushback on Twitter is, is, you know, I mean, Germany deserves a hell of a lot worse. Um, and it's interesting to me because, you know, I remember um, Willy Brandt um, 
you know, after the first Gulf War, gave a major speech in Germany saying, we got to fix the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We, if we let this fester, it, it's going to have horrific ramifications. What Willie Brandt was a, you know, an anti-fascist that eventually became uh, Chancellor of Germany and, you know, sort of put Germany on a decent course throughout the 60s and 70s. Um, and then when he was sort of in retirement, he came out and gave this major speech in, I guess, 1991. Um, so obviously the German establishment didn't heed that. And they've gone along with the U.S.-NATO agenda on so many things um, with disastrous consequences for the world and ultimately for Germany. Yeah, yeah, it is, it, it's, uh, I think the European Union itself has been really exposed uh, through this, but it's member states, you know, used to have some degree of independence, but they all seem to be kind of falling in line with the United States. This seems to be a, a, a very discernible trend uh, in Europe, and Brussels is trying to marshal a consensus, uh, but Ursula von der Leyen, very unpopular, increasingly so, herself a failed German minister out of the Merkel government. Uh, so Europe is um, it's, it's not a very good time, I think, uh, for Europe. You could say it's a little bit of the dark ages uh, internationally. Um, so that's yeah, very regrettable, uh, I think. I think Germany will, will regret this move uh, in, in the future or future voters and, and Germans will look back at this as uh, not, not a good time. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine as well, that's another story. But um, on this issue, we got a couple of minutes left, uh, Sam. So, uh, where, where where do you think things are going to go from here? It's it's already having an effect. Uh, a number of the Gulf states they feel a little bit hemmed in now on this South African move. There's a little bit of a, a moral cloud hanging over this now that wasn't there before. So while people say, Sam, and they often do. The court has no teeth. The International Courts of Justice is it is Israel's not going to comply. Look, Netanyahu is basically thumbing his nose at it already. It's it's it does have an effect though politically, doesn't it, Sam? Because this does sort of set the tone for the global consensus. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. This is an opportunity for the global South to unite and assert itself in a meaningful way. It exposes the Arab governments and regimes as. Um, you know, why, why did South Africa do it? Why didn't all of you guys do it? Um, um, you know, uh, so, it, you know, puts the onus on them. It puts on, onus on, on institutions. I couldn't get Al Jazeera English to make a single mention of the possibility of invoking the Genocide Convention. And I tried over and over again since October until when South Africa finally invoked it. I couldn't get Al Jazeera English to talk about the possibility of a country um, invoking genocide con convention at the ICJ until South Africa did, and then they reported on, and they didn't report on it very prominently at first. Um, so it, it really exposes a lot of the machinations of these uh, Gulf and other Arabic um, uh, Arabic states, and it also puts a lot of Europeans in a bind too, because they're supposed to stand up for international law. I mean, you expect the U.S. Uh, establishment not to care, uh, but the, U uh, the European countries pretend to care about international law. Um, 
and so it exposes it exposes them as well. And I mean, there could be some movement. Some activists are trying to get Belgium or Spain or potentially Ireland. Uh, there's a lot of movement in Ireland, but the government is obstinate uh, to file. Um, and you know, in a sense, I think in terms of the activism, you know, all activism is good because you could potentially, you know, stop countries from doing bad interventions, even the bad one, let's say Canada, for example, you know, at least, you know, get them to shut the hell up. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a mindset that some activists um, might have in, in, in pushing them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this strips a layer. And, it, you know, in terms of it's, you know, there are things, I don't know how, if we get the time for another minute or two here, but. Yeah, go ahead, Sam, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, th this could, the next steps, if the ICJ, and we we don't know that it'll do this, we don't know what will happen. I mean, they're, the judges are under tremendous pressure, I'm sure, and they could fold, you know, or, you know, or, you know, all kinds of deals could be struck, all the, 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 their, uh, they could be being blackmailed for all I know, as we've known in prior cases. We, we I think we talked about that last week. Um, but if the ICJ does issue uh, provincial orders uh, against Israel, uh, uh, potentially even saying, you know, you have to do a ceasefire. It would go to the Security Council. Now, the U.S. presumably would veto it. I think this would dramatically escalate the diplomatic costs and political costs against the United States. It would buttress all kinds of other things, uh, like the BDS movement against Israel, for example. Um, so it would have those ramifications, but legally, then the General Assembly can attempt to seize control of the matter. And they can do very concrete things using Uniting for Peace. Uh, they could suspend Israel uh, from activities at the General Assembly. I don't think they can kick Israel out of the UN altogether, but they can suspend them uh, from activities. They could admit Palestine as a full-fledged voting member of uh, the United Nations, and they could also um, uh, create a tribunal. Um, but since the International Criminal Court has refused to do its job um, and you know look at criminal activity by Israel or any NATO or pro-U.S. government at all, um, um, they could set up a tribunal. In the past, these tribunals were created by the General Assembly on Rwanda and Yugoslavia, but there's nothing stopping the General Assembly from creating a tribunal that would go after individuals. Um, so that is one other thing. So you could have South Africa leading the way at the General Assembly to, you know, uh, to begin to show cracks in the U.S. dominated international order. Uh, and you know, as a member of BRICS, as a member of the Global South, uh, this this could be you know, a major step in terms of how world affairs are configured. 
Yeah, and those wheels will continue to turn in the coming weeks and months. So this is, uh, get ready, this is a long-term issue. It's not going to go away. It will continue smoldering in the background uh, as time goes by. Even if there's a ceasefire, all these legal moves, all of these sort of processes will still continue behind the scenes. And it really depends on the political will of uh, the international community to make all that happen. But Sam Husseini, a journalist, thank you for joining us. And do follow Sam work on Substack uh, as well as on X Twitter. We've tagged him on our Twitter feed at 21Wire. Follow Sam, follow his work, subscribe to his Substack column. It is excellent, essential source of information, especially on this issue. Sam, thanks for joining us on TNT this week. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Sam Husseini, journalist based in Washington, D.C. Let's take a break right now with the network. And when we come back, we'll get a reaction on this topic and other news from our roving correspondent, Basil Valentine, on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, we've got an interesting new study out. The real atmosphere does not follow the greenhouse gas effect hypothesis of the IPCC. Now, remember, what they're saying is a hypothesis. That means it is not proven. A theory, for instance, is something that is proven, and you get to disprove it, and then that causes a problem. It's no longer a theory. But a hypothesis is just an idea and needs constant testing. Well, CO2 increased from 310 parts per million to 385 parts per million during the 60 years from 1948 to 2008. Now, this is written by Kenneth Richard, so I want to give him credit because he put this out there. Probably takes guts to do that. But the observations indicate this led to a negative radiative imbalance, which means CO2 may be having a cooling effect opposite of what the IPCC has claimed is happening. Water vapor is the number one greenhouse gas. Water vapor has the correlation to temperature. If you increase water vapor, you will increase the temperature. You will increase it more where it's observed to increase more in the coldest, driest areas. That's the correlation. Where is the water vapor coming from? It would be coming from the oceans. So what do you think is heating the oceans? Now, I have my hypothesis and a lot of people don't like it, but it certainly can't be CO2. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see how fast you can go under the most extreme conditions, like when it's dark, when the weather's bad, or when the unexpected happens. The higher the speed, the harder the impact. But driving isn't a game or a race. When you're on the road, just 10 miles per hour over the limit can mean the difference between life and death. You're responsible for people's lives and your own. Slow down and save lives. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back. Patrick Henningsen, your host here. We are live and direct. We're now number one of TNT, today's news talk. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show. Thank you for joining us and a great segment as usual. Incredibly informative and getting into some areas that a lot of people haven't yet considered. Sam Husseini, veteran journalist from the United States. Fantastic segment on this issue of the Genocide Convention. How it's shaping geopolitics, how it's shaping domestic politics in the United States. These Things all matter. That's why we're here to discuss them. On the line right now, let's bring in our intrepid uh, correspondent, our man in almost Africa, Basil Valentine, joining us 
on the live link right now via satellite or via something. Basil, how are you? Very well, thank you, Patrick. Good to be with you. And hello to our viewers and listeners all around the world. It's great to have you as well, Basil, and just giving us uh, a little uh, report uh, on the state of the world. Uh, you had a great uh, guest. Uh, we, we had a great guest before the break, Sam Husseini, talking about the uh, ramifications, the shockwaves of South Africa's major intervention in The Hague, uh, posting on behalf of the Palestinian people, uh, invoking the Genocide Convention. Already, it's caused all sorts of problems and stirs, uh, especially in Europe. Germany is backing the genocide, as is Justin Trudeau in Canada, taking the side of genocide, backing the Israelis, saying there's no genocide happening in Gaza. Literally, this is what Trudeau has said at a press conference and the germans as well and people are the, the irony alarms are going off like crazy uh, on this basil it's hard to contain the chatter online the memes are circulating it's absolutely incredible what do you think about these developments well tremendous pushback from namibia against germany's denial of the genocide because of course the germans committed their own genocide in namibia at the beginning of the 20th century so they've been slapped down pretty hard um i mean what we're seeing of course is the result of decades of capture of western capitals by uh, zionists whether you it's by bribery or um some other form of malfeasance if you believe the epstein possibilities shall we say that politicians have been blackmailed but generally just you know decades and decades of uh, APAC and Israel lobby money, uh, as well as the smears, of course, that saw the end of the Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party, have meant that European capitals in the United States, the places that really matter to Israel, if anywhere matters, uh, are, are all, you know, what people call Zionist occupied government, ZOG. Uh, the global south, with the exception of India, is far more independent and recognizes apartheid and genocide when it sees it. But the West is defiant in denial. Uh, at least the governments are. I mean, at the weekend, we saw uh, the estimates of somewhere between 500 and 800,000 people marching for Palestine for a ceasefire for human rights and justice and all good things through London. And the following day on the Sunday, there was a pro-Israel march and uh, it fitted very easily into one quarter of Trafalgar Square. It was a tiny number of people. Um, I would guess probably two or 3,000 at most. So the pro-genocide march was outnumbered by about 300 to one. But that didn't stop the BBC reporting both as being of roughly equal the same size. Thousands march in support of Israel, it declared uh, at tea time yesterday, taking a photograph, a close-up photograph of a section of the thickest section of the crowd, making it appear that there were far more people there than there were. But we're used to that from the BBC. So, we, you know, we're still in this uh, strange twilight world where basically the world can see what's happening in Gaza for the sheer evil that it is. Uh, and yet, because Western capitals are captured, that isn't reflected in international foreign policy. 
I heard a, a really uh, amazing interview. It was with uh, Kovork Almasian, a Syriana analysis. I mean, he's amazing. We've had him on the program before. Uh, and he was talking to Dr. Tariq uh, Cyril Amar, who grew up in Germany, was, you know, raised in Germany, although from an, uh, another extraction. But um, he made a really important comment here. He's trying to explain Germany's behavior on this because it does – confound logic in so many ways, Basil, as you can imagine. And he said that uh, Germany feels like it has to atone for its past guilt, i.e. support for Israel, uh, atone for its guilt down to the last Palestinian. That's, right. a powerful, that's a powerful statement there. And he called it cultish. He described this uh, support as cult-like. Or cult-ish, almost like a depraved sort of death cult, whereby <laughs> as you th said, so, Patrick, I'm, I'm afraid yeah. to say that increasing numbers of people see Zionism as some kind of depraved death cult, and the numbers back that up: twenty-three thousand nine hundred and sixty-eight confirmed fatalities, according to a United Nations impact of the hundred days. Uh, produced today uh, 60,582 injuries 60582 1.9 million people internally displaced um, and zero hours of electricity per day zero on top of that we saw pictures at the weekend of you know crowds of hundreds and thousands of starving Gazans chasing after fuel trucks and food trucks and what they believed to be aid only to find themselves being fired upon by israeli snipers the most hellish scenes imaginable and also saw a statistic um that uh, estimated un unconfirmed yet because there's still more to count but um well over 15, uh, 1500 amputees or people with uh severe injuries to limbs whereby they're no longer uh, operable uh so i mean that's the kind of thing basil that uh, you know you remember after world wars when the soldiers come home and you see all the amputees and the men with the peg legs the the prosthetics uh the crutches uh these are civilians not combatants uh and this is horrific children most of them and children most there of them are children going to be thousands and thousands of child amputees in mm. Gaza, who is going to look after them for the rest of their lives. People talk about the day after the end of the war, the Palestinian Authority, uh, Netanyahu says he wants to run the whole area, you know. Um, but what, you know, who's going to look after the people that live there? Uh, and where are they going to live? Because Northern Gaza in particular has been absolutely devastated. And of course, now they're bombing the south. Khan Yunis, uh, a regular subject of airstrikes, even though that's one of the areas that was supposed to have been declared a safe zone. So, you know, unfortunately, the situation on the ground in Gaza continues to deteriorate. Uh, the in World Health Organization say 80% of all the hungriest people in the world are now in Gaza. Mm. Yeah, no, is is absolutely shocking. I even saw uh, there's a lot of footage circulating of uh, Israeli 
occupation forces uh, firing on crowds of Palestinians who are That's trying right. to get to get food aid uh, as as they're approaching the aid, they're getting fired upon uh, indiscriminately by the Israeli occupation forces. I mean, uh, at some point, this is just ridiculous uh, how this is acceptable. It's absolutely obscene. Yeah. You know, the Israelis have denied anesthetics. You know, they have uh, banned anesthetics effectively from entering the Gaza Strip, meaning that people have to undergo surgery without anesthetic. This is sadistic. This is absolutely no military, possible military reason for this. But then again, there's no possible military reason for 99% of what they've been doing. No, it's collective punishment. The the rationale of yes. the Israeli of Israeli officials is that that anesthetic is going to go to Hamas. Um, therefore, we want to everything restrict is. it. Yeah, fuel, food, everything. Yeah, I mean, in fact, Netanyahu said yesterday he wanted to close the Rafa crossing. I don't know if that's happened mm -hmm. or not. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, the United States, the White House, and Secretary Blinken issued statements after the 100 days yesterday, which completely ignored the 23,968 fatalities and only referenced the remaining hostages being held in Gaza and, of course, made no reference whatsoever to the Palestinian hostages being held in Israel, who vastly outnumber them. No, that, and you're starting. You, you see that right across the media coverage. Actually, it's just almost like this airbrushing of uh, anything happening on the the Palestinian side. Which, in terms of what they, what Israel has in terms of uh, hostages or prisoners, as they call them, including many hundreds of children and women, uh, this it, it, it dwarfs uh, what uh, the Palestinian uh, resistance factions uh, took hostage on October seventh. By a factor of, I don't know, uh, About 10, 20, 20 to 1. 20, 20 to 1. Something like that. 20 to 1. Yeah, I mean, doesn't get any coverage. Always, yeah. yeah, the Israelis always like to kill a lot more Palestinians than than their own number of casualties. That's been a um, statistic for the last 50, 60, 70 years, however long it is. One wonders whether they are continuing to massacre Palestinians by the 100 every day, which they are. You know, have about 200 killed in airstrikes every day um, because they themselves are suffering losses in the northern Gaza Strip in the in the fighting. So it's like, well, if 20 Israelis got killed, 20 Israeli soldiers got killed, then we have to kill 200 civilians because they want to. And this is something that the media reinforces, uh, always make it clear to the world that Israeli lives are worth more than Palestinian lives. And that, unfortunately, is something reiterated by all the coverage that we see as well. You know, if an Israeli is kidnapped, if an Israeli is shot, dies in any way, they are given a name, a backstory. This is all described as a terrible tragedy. Uh, adjectives like savage and barbaric are used to describe the way they're killed. Palestinians, however, simply die in far greater numbers and they are neither named nor given any kind of personal identity and this is you know again just another indication of the depths of depravity to which we have sunk yeah the headline will be uh, uh palestinian uh killed in missile explosion or uh, died sorry, there was, there was, dies there was a after yeah yeah go ahead sorry there was a four-year-old girl died in the west bank no hamas um 
a couple of days ago and sky reported it as you know a bullet having entered this young lady's head you know i mean she was shot in that she was shot dead shot in the head assassinated but they can't bring themselves to say so why not you know yeah well we, we we know why we know why uh there's a, an incredible amount of influence peddling going on uh in the media as part of that as well they get leaned on heavily uh, as do politicians no secret all that's coming out now anyway basil valentine our roving correspondent this week thank you for joining us much appreciated final word the chinese want a huge international conference to establish a palestinian state so we'll see how they get on with that